Romans 14. When we're measuring our love for our family, it is more than, I gave you the last bite, or I gave you the bigger half, or I sacrificed this portion. Um, The question that should arise within us is, what are we willing to forego for your love for your family? And really, that is what is at stake no pun intended, in Romans chapter 14, uh, where the question should arise for us, what would you be willing to forego for the spiritual benefit of your brother or sister in Jesus Christ? And so the title of our discussion this morning from Romans 14 is, How Much Do You Care? How Much Do You Care? Now, there's so much in this chapter, it's very difficult, it's difficult for me to narrow it down, and I have my my notes are very narrowed down from what I would like to say uh, for the sake of being clear and purposeful. It's very obvious that there is a challenge among the Church of Rome concerning the Old Testament law and its relationship to the believer in Jesus Christ. And it is very obvious that Paul is not saying that those that are the weak in faith are abusing the Old Testament law and thus marring desperately the gospel. Because Paul deals with those things in the book of Galatians and in the book of Colossians. And when he does, he doesn't say welcome them, but instead he says anathema, curses be upon them forever and ever in Galatians. And in Colossians he says they have a self-made religion and and he lets them very, they know very clearly in verse 23 of Colossians chapter 2 that that self-made religion will not win them any wars for thwarting the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, an ascetic, an ascetic, an ascetic excuse me, lifestyle where we just deny ourselves, deny ourselves, deny ourselves will not give us a good standing before God. The people in... This letter, Paul calls weak in the faith, but they are in the faith. In this letter, he lets us know that God is welcoming them, that God will make him stand, that they are your brother, that God, Jesus, is their Lord, and that they will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So when we deal with this, and and you see in in verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord, uh, in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. He is not undoing what took place in the book of Acts, where God sent a sheet vision down in front of Peter and said, don't call what I have said is clean, unclean. Go and eat these meats. Well, I've never eaten anything like this. Eat. I've called them clean. Paul is not undoing that. He agrees that that is no longer a binding regulation against God's people. However, it does not harm a person to refrain. He does the same thing with the celebration of the Lord's Day. Some elevate one day above another. Some elevate every day the same or celebrate every day the same. Let everyone be convinced in his own mind. Now, if these people were saying, if you eat meat, you will stand condemned before God, that's not, this is not the discussion that Paul would have been having with them. It would be much more in the line of Galatians chapter 1. If he said you must celebrate these special days, the conversation would be much more in line with Galatians chapter 1. But instead, it's someone whose own conscience holds them captive. They have not come to the place that they've been released from 
these dietary laws and these day celebrations, even though they have been set free from a theological standpoint, they have not been set free from a conscience standpoint. Paul is not undoing any of that. If this were a devastating gospel issue, this is not the tenor that his wording would have taken, but it is not a devastating gospel issue. It is a church unity issue. It is a brother-loving brother issue. It is a peace issue. It is a joy issue. It's a righteousness, the right way to live, issue. It's a faith issue. It's a church body caring for one another issue. So we have this question, how much do you care? The second half of Romans continues the idea that has been conveyed in the first half of Romans 14, and that is welcome one another. In verses 1 through 9, we noted that we are to welcome one another because we are God's servants. Welcome one another, you are God's servants. And then in verses 10 through 12, we are to welcome one another because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Rather than standing in a seat of judgment against someone, recognize there is a more important judge. Your judgment is of very little value. Your judgment is not, doesn't have anything binding attached to it. But there is a binding judgment that's coming, and that is the Lord Jesus himself. So as we get to the second half of chapter 14, we'll notice this this morning. Welcome one another. You are to reflect God's kingdom. Welcome one another. You are to reflect God's kingdom. He starts off in verse 13 by saying, therefore. Guess what that means? He's continuing his discussion that he's already started, right? Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. In other words, they have been having some issues with judging one another, and they need to stop this problem. Why should they not judge one another? Well, we've already captured that. Uh, already, but just for the sake of review, God has welcomed him in verse 3. God is his master in verses 4 and 7 through 9, and God is his judge in verses 10 through 12. So we don't need to recover those steps. So not only are we to not judge one another any longer in, at the beginning of verse 13, but the second half of the verse, Paul uses a play on words. He says, but rather... Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And so we have this clear principle. Do not cause stumbling. Do not cause stumbling. He says in the first half, don't judge one another anymore. In the second half, but rather decide. He uses a a similar word. The, the, The root of the word is the same. Instead of judging one another, judge this. Judge this. Never Put a stumbling block or any kind of a hindrance in the way of your brother. Rather than judging your brother, judge yourself and make sure you are not hampering your brother from walking with the Lord the way that he should. He uses stumbling and hindrance. And now the words are used interchangeably through the New Testament. We could go and look at them all. But what you'd find if, I, if we traced both Stumbling block and hindrance around the New Testament, you keep hearing stumbling block, stumbling block, stumbling block, stumbling block, stumbling block. So he uses two words to say the same idea. There's probably some nuance that you could dissect out of it, but I don't think that's the important part of what we're seeing. Don't cause your brother to sin. Don't care so much for your own liberty to do whatever it is you think is right that you would be willing to cause your brother to sin by wounding their conscience. Verse 14, take a look, please. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Jesus said something about this, remember? It's not what you put into the vessel that makes you impure. It's what comes out of the vessel that is impure. Your real problem is not what you're eating and drinking. Your real problem is that you are you. Yeah, you like that one. Verse 14, uh, second half. But it is unclean, it is, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Yes, Paul agrees with those that have been liberated with regard to feast days and with regard to the particular kinds of food. But he is not to the point that he cares so much about that liberality 
that he's willing to hurt his brother for that liberality. Uh, they, they're being correct about a, an issue is not worth the stumbling of our brother. So that's, I think it's pretty basic so far. Do not judge one another any longer. Don't cause stumbling to one another. And then in verses 15, and, uh, in verse 15 he, he kind of ratchets it up about a thousand degrees. He says in verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Well, that, he turned up the heat right there, but it gets hotter toward the end of verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So let's start with the first half of the verse, and then we'll get to the, the heated up portion in just a moment. Do not grieve one another. Do not grieve one another. This word is used numerous times in our New Testaments, and I want to look at a couple of passages where it's used for our own uh, edification. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You'll find that on page 964 of one of our church Bibles. Paul uses this term numerous times in these verses. We're talking about grieving. If you grieve your brother by what you eat, if you grieve your brother by your manner of life, you're not walking in love. Well, what is this concept of grieving? Well, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this way, beginning in verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another, what does it say, painful visit to you. Now, that is a derivative of the word that's a, a, a related word and he uses the very same word in verse 2 for if I cause you say it pain who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have say it please pained and I um, and I wrote as I did so that when I come I might not suffer what does it say pain from those who should have made me rejoice for I felt sure of of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should return, excuse me, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan we are not ignorant of his designs. So there's a lot to this, but you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a, a man that was involving himself inappropriately sexually with his stepmother. What a disaster all of that was. We don't need to get into all the details, but the church was instructed to put him outside of the church so that we wouldn't revel, glory, be puffed up in our gracious spirit. Hey, we're not really bound by those law things any longer. So um, if you want to do that, that's, that's really up to you. Well, that, that sounds like the 21st century, right? What you do is your business. You can have a flag for it or whatever else. Um, this, this, this is not good. In the church, there's a concern that people recognize the purity of truth and are unwilling to deter from the purity of the truth. And so that person is removed for their own sake so that they would learn that it's not okay to live in direct disobedience to the clear teachings of Scripture. Well, that person came to repentance. It's, it's unbelievable. Like, this is not the way things work. When you... Tell someone, you're not welcome here because of the way you're 
living, you're living completely contrary and outwardly and openly contrary to what God says. You're not allowed to be a part of this fellowship. It is an impurity to the church. You send them out. This is not popular, and it doesn't make sense to us that that person would repent, but instead that they would rebel and hate, hate those people for being judgy or worse. But this person, as has been the case many times in church history, in obedience to the Lord's commands, that person recognized the sinfulness of their way and the rightness of this assessment, repented of their sin. And the church didn't know what to do with themselves. Paul said, hey, he's already suffered enough. It's time now to welcome him back in. To not welcome him back in is to expose yourself to the devices of Satan to produce an unforgiving, unkind, unloving spirit where repentance is unwelcomed. So Paul says, I didn't write to you to give you pain. I wrote to you so you would avoid the strategies of Satan and not be unloving, unkind, and unforgiving. I wrote to you for your better, not for your worse. I didn't write to grieve you. I wrote so that you would be better and he would be better and that there would be joy and rejoicing at the repentance of a person who has turned from Christ but turned back to Christ. This is always good news. It's always good news when a person turns from their sin and turns to Jesus. We should rejoice in this, and the church should rejoice in God's mercy and grace and God's restoration. We never rejoice in the sin. We rejoice in God's work in dealing with the sin. Don't grieve. I didn't write to grieve you. The same word is used in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 where we're given this instruction. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now there's a lot in Ephesians chapter 4. There's stuff that comes before it about not walking contrary to the new way of Christ. And after it, it talks about having the kind of spirit of forgiveness in uh, verses 31 and 32 that should be evident in the lives of believers to disobey the Lord in these areas is to grieve the Spirit of God. It's to grieve God himself. And this is the idea back in Romans chapter 14. If you, because of your own assessment, want to continue judging one another, rather than to decide never to put a stumbling block that causes your brother or sister to sin, even though you might be right about your philosophy or your theory, or even your theology, if you cause your brother to stumble, you're no longer walking in love. Instead, you're grieving them. Grieving them. Isn't that the last thing you want to do to another believer in Jesus Christ, is to grieve them? You want them to be built up. And he says, literally, you are no longer, when you're doing that, you're no longer walking in love. Head back to Romans 14. No longer walking in love. If you choose your liberty over the betterment of your brother or sister in Christ. Rather than grieving one another, our goal should be loving one another. This is a constant refrain in the New Testament, including from our Lord Jesus to his disciples. You'll remember in John 13, 34 and 35, where the Bible says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as... That's an important it's an important preposition. Just as, to the same degree as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this same degree of love that you express for one another, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we're talking about serious business here. Stop passing judgment. Instead, judge yourself not to cause a person to stumble, a brother to stumble, even though every food is unclean of itself, every event is unclean in and of itself, unless it's directly communicated by the word, unless God directly says, don't do this, everything is clean. Sitting on the beach. Does the Bible say don't sit on the beach? It's clean, unless it's not clean for you. I can guarantee you there are people in this room that should not go to the beach. 
I guarantee you, there are people in this room that should not go to the beach. Why? Because it would be unclean for you. You know why? Because you can't keep your eyes where they belong. Don't go. Because if you go, because it's okay for that person to go, you're sinning, you're violating your own conscience before the Lord, don't do it. But there's nothing wrong with you going to the beach, maybe. Maybe you don't have that problem. Maybe you don't stare at other people's bodies when they're walking by. Maybe that doesn't cause the wrong kinds of thoughts to come into your head. Then going to the beach is clean for you. But it's not the same for everybody. And we need to recognize this. It's of vital importance. That's just one of thousands of illustrations that we could use for something that's clean for one person and unclean for another. Now, there are plenty of churches that want to make it clean or unclean for everybody. We have our list of things. You can do this, and you can't do this. If you do this, you're wicked, and if you don't do this, you're clean. Um, Well, Paul has some other things to say about that. However, he transitions, and he now turns up the heat. This is incredibly significant. He has moved from don't judge one another, don't cause them to sin, don't grieve them, you're not walking in love, all of these things are difficult. And now he puts us on the mat, and he says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, there are so many thoughts here that so many have had on this. I obviously have my strong opinion that I am going to convey to you. Uh, There are commentators that I have great respect for, uh, one of which is Thomas Schreiner, who does an excellent job in his uh, Romans commentary. Incredible. So detail, detail, detail. And he looks through this section, and he's looking at the words. He's very technical far more technical than I have the capacity for, and he, and he proves his point to himself, not me, proves his point that when he says destroy, he's talking about eternal damnation. So he makes this compelling argument with his wording and his technicalities that if we violate our brother or sister's conscience and they live contrary to their conscience and continue to live contrary to their conscience, that this is an indication that they're not a believer and they will stand guilty at the judgment seat. Now again, he uses the word to prove his interpretation. And I'm not going to contrast his right to interpret what he has interpreted based upon his own methodology. But what I will tell you is the context of this passage does not bear that out. And he is not alone in his assessment that what he says is destroying means the absolute and utter destruction, condemnation. Many commentators will agree with that, and I cannot, I cannot share their, their thought. I think that is completely wrong. I have a real problem with this. The context is talking about brothers It's talking about the church. It's talking about the weak in the faith. It's talking about those that God himself will cause to stand, that God has welcomed. He does it again in chapter 15 and verse 17. Therefore, welcome who? One another as Christ has welcomed you. He's All of you that are involved in this scenario are people that are welcomed by Christ. You can't be welcomed and condemned at the self-same time. You can tell I can get a little worked up about this. I would like you to listen to a counter-argument from John Stott. I have my own counter-argument. John Stott does a very nice job of succinctly uh, characterizing it. It'll be on the screens to to my right and left. What kind of destruction does Paul have in mind? Professor Dunn. Uh, claims that, as all recent commentators agree, what is in view is final eschatological ruin, meaning hell. I beg to disagree for four reasons. First, are we really to believe that a Christian brother's single act against his own conscience, which in any case is not his fault, but the fault of the strong who have misled him, and which is therefore an unintentional mistake, not a deliberate disobedience, Merits eternal condemnation? No. 
Hell is reserved only for the stubborn, the impenitent, and those who willfully persist in wrongdoing. Secondly, such a view, the eternal destruction of a brother, is inconsistent. This is, to me, this is a vital right here. Number one, it's questionable. You, could, you, could, you can go either way on number one. Number two is of vital importance. Such a view, the eternal destruction of a brother, is inconsistent with the doctrine of final preservation or perseverance. I changed the word because that's what I prefer. Preservation, that's God's act. Perseverance is a person's act. Eh, sorry. Which the apostle has eloquently expressed in Romans 8, 28 through 39, affirming that absolutely nothing can ever separate us from God's love. The hallmark of every authentic brother or sister is that he or she will, by God's steadfast love, persevere to the end or be preserved to the end. Thirdly, Paul writes in verse 15 that the strong are capable of destroying the weak, but Jesus said that God himself is the only person who can and will destroy people in hell. Got it? That, he didn't make that up. Jesus said it, right? Be, don't, don't be afraid of those that can hurt the body. Be concerned about the one who can destroy you eternally in hell. Yeah, that's, that's Jesus talking about himself as the one who can condemn or God the Father as the one who can condemn, though he's committed all judgment to the Son. Fourthly, the context demands a different interpretation of destroy. Apolumi has a broad spectrum of senses which range from killing to spoiling. Here, the opposite of destroy, this is a vital contextual clue, the opposite of to destroy is to build up. To build up. Paul's warning, therefore, is that the strong who mislead the weak to go against their consciences will severely, or excuse me, will uh, seriously damage their Christian discipleship. He urges the strong against causing such injury to the weak. So let's look at it in context. That's a lot of information, right? You didn't come here to hear John R.W. Stott's commentary. Um, it's just a good sounding board for us to serve us. Verse seven, uh, 15 again. For if your brother is grieved, who, who is grieved? Your brother is grieved by what you eat. You are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, I have a lot of questions for a person like uh, Professor Schreiner because he holds to things that are very strong theologically, and Paul makes very clearly uh, makes very clear that the one that is being destroyed is the one for whom Christ died. They've got a lot of problems with saying that means that they're going to eternal hellfire. Go on, verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then... Is that a connector? So then, it's like therefore. So then, let us pursue what makes for what? Peace and for a mutual upbuilding. The opposite of destroying is building up. Then he reiterates, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Work of God, very interesting. Should make you think of Ephesians chapter 2 immediately. Ephesians chapter 2 starts, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Goes on and tells us how devastating that is, down through verse 3, verse 4. But God, who is rich in uh, mercy, uh, grace, then he goes on, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that none of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ. Yeah, for, right. We, we've got it. Workmanship. Workmanship. He goes on and says that you are one new man in Christ. He talks about that, that poetic, beautiful work of God, that workmanship of God later on in chapter 2 again. Here in chapter 14 of Romans, verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Can anyone, can anyone fight against God? Oh, yes, they can. How many win? <laughs> None. None. So I think we've got a we have a compelling reason to differ from the broad scholarly world about what destroy means in this text. 
In other texts, destroy means destroy, and I, I can go with them. But this text is far too clear in another direction to take it as the eternal destruction of a brother. Instead, what we're recognizing is that, that God has used Paul to use a charged word to talk about the significance of the damage that we can have on a brother or sister in Jesus Christ if we don't care enough about them to sacrifice our own expression of liberality. I've been freed. Well, I don't have to follow your regulation. Yeah, okay, but what if you hurt the person? What if you cause them to stumble in sin? What, what if you grieve them? What, what if you're no longer walking in love? And what if you really hamper their pursuit of Jesus Christ. What then? Here you have them over to your house on a Sunday, and they, they celebrate Sunday differently than you do. But you, you, you've been set free. The, those restrictions for the Sabbath, first of all, were on a Saturday, and they're in the Old Testament. So you can mow your lawn on a Sunday. You can play golf on a Sunday, throw a football around on a Sunday. You can go shoot hoops on a Sunday. It's at your own house. He tells you in verse 22, do it. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. So do it. But let's suppose you invite someone that doesn't see that the same way on a Sunday. You say, hey, let's go out and shoot some hoops. Yeah, we don't do that on Sundays. Ah, come on. Yeah, we, we, the way we celebrate the Lord's Day is, and they tell you what it is, oh, that, that's, that's whatever, and you have your argument, and then you say, let's go do it. Let's go do it anyway. And so they, like, they're, they're a guest at your house, and they, they go out and do it. Instead of enjoying the Lord's Day, they feel like they're sinning, and they are. Even though even though it wouldn't have been sin for you, uh, I changed that, it wouldn't have been sin for you to shoot hoops on a Sunday, but you dragged your brother, who it's not okay to do that, into it. Now you're both sinning. Is it worth it? Uh, you, you have a friend who is very health conscious, and they think it's wrong to eat in a certain way. And you're like, there's nothing wrong with you. God gave us all things richly to enjoy. You come over to your house, like you would normally have steak and potato and then like a dessert and some other thing, and you, you would indulge um, and feel fine about it. But they're very health conscious. They, they're very concerned about these things, and, and they come to your house, and there's nothing they can eat. And you're like, just eat it. God made all things richly for us to enjoy. Everything you can be received with thanksgiving, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Use Bible verses to prove to them that they should just enjoy it. But their conscience has not arrived there. And so for the sake of something to eat, you violate their conscience. It's not, it's not all right. You can go right down the line with music issues. Um, maybe certain styles of music are fine for you. But someone was saved from a culture where that music meant something else. And it, and it carries that baggage with them. But you're like, oh, every musical style is amoral. You make your, your point about what musical styles are, and everything is fine before the Lord, and you can listen to it. But for them, it drags them to a place of their old life, and it's bad for them. Rather than trying to drag them along to your enlightened level of spirituality, how about just, just care for them? What's better What's better, to have a great fellowship with a brother and sister in Christ with whom you're going to spend eternity or to get to do that the way you want to? What's better? No, it's, it's about the person and it's about the Lord. And so God is trying to remove from us a holding on to our own freedoms when it comes to dealing with someone that doesn't see things the same way we do? Are they more important than our, our precious freedoms? The answer is yes. And God makes that abundantly clear in this text. 
Let's look a little further in Romans 14. Do not allow your liberty to become a reproach. Do not allow your liberty to become a reproach. That's in verses 16 through 18. We'll start with just verse 16 for now. Do not let what you regard as good, that's the Greek term agathos, just a simple word for that which is good or pleasing or beautiful. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, that word blasphemy. Do not what you regard as good be ill spoken of or blasphemed. Now, when I think, whenever I, whenever I hear blasphemy, and when you hear it, we think of high-level issues, right? Well, they are high-level issues. But God does us a favor oftentimes, and he grounds it in normal life. Blasphemy. Take a look, please, with me at Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. You'll find that on page 998 of one of our church Bibles. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is giving Titus instructions regarding the church. And in chapter 2, he's talking about a lot about discipleship and how the older ladies should teach the younger ladies. And she, he's telling them about normal elements of life. And then in verses 9 and 10, which we're going to get to in a moment, he's talking about normal elements, about being a bondservant. And he grounds these concepts in higher-level issues. Listen to what he says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train, train by example, live by example, train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Stop right there just for a moment. These are just normal everyday activities, correct? Listen to what is at stake at the end of verse 5. That the word of God may not be reviled, the word blasphemed. It's everyday life. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Look down at verses 9 and 10. Now this time, instead of saying it in the negative, he says it in the positive. Bond servants, verse 9, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In everyday life, they're putting on the garb, I want you to know who my Savior is. They're putting on the garb, I want you to know who my God is. I go to work, and I work hard, and I, I don't steal time, and I don't steal resources. I go, and I work hard, and while I'm doing it, I'm putting on a garment, a garment that says, I belong to God. Look at who my Lord is. Look at who my Savior is. I want you to know him. That's stating it in the positive. Doing your everyday life, empowered by the Spirit for the glory of God, is to be to the praise of His glory that the world about you may know who God is. And the opposite, the opposite of doing life, empowered by the Spirit for the glory of God, is to blaspheme the doctrine of God our Savior, is to blaspheme the word of Christ, to blaspheme the word of God. Don't let what you consider to be good be spoken of as a blasphemous activity. You think it's all right to do X, Y, and Z. Someone else doesn't. Don't drag them into your freedom. That doesn't mean you can't talk to them about it. Don't you remember that um, Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos and brought them along? And they taught them the word of the Lord more accurately. There's nothing wrong with talking to someone about the word. Hey, listen, you seem to feel really compelled to not do X, Y, and Z. But I would like to show you from the word why that's not the case. But what I also want to tell you is I'm not telling you to do it. When God gives you a green light, go for it. But I'm never, I'm never going to drag you into an area that you think is wrong. That needs to be the love 
that is on display from brother to sister in this place. I don't care about me. I care about you. I care about your well-being, your love for God, your pursuit of Christ, your need of mercy and grace. He's very, he's very strong in this matter. He's using high-charged words. Don't let what you consider good be spoken of as evil. So the way we have it characterized, back one slide if you don't mind, is, I'm going to click forward once. Oh, there it is. Do not allow your liberty to become a reproach. Don't allow your liberty to become a reproach. Back to Romans 14, please. What I'm doing is fine. God permits it. But it's not about that. Verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Well, what does he mean by righteousness? Now, this is, righteousness is a lot of applications, doesn't it? Specific to this application is, if you are violating someone else's conscience, you are not doing what is what? Right. If you're violating someone else's conscience, you are not doing what is right. You're more concerned about eating and drinking. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. It's about right doing what's right. And what's right is caring more for your brother or sister than yourself. He says uh, in later on, um, peace, peace. The kingdom of God is not about uh, eating and drinking, but it's about peace. It's not producing peace to flaunt my liberty to my brother. And it's also not providing mutual joy to harm my brother. In verse 17, we've already looked at some illustrations of it, um, so we're not going to re-look through that. I had, I had it out of order in my notes. The Spirit is the one who produces this righteousness, peace, and joy. Isn't that correct? Can you, of your own accord, produce righteousness? How do you know that? Well, all of my righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64 says. Paul was very clear in Philippians chapter 3 that it's not my own righteousness. I've counted them as rubbish or dung or whatever other choice word you want to use. Um, what I need and what I have received by faith is the righteousness of Christ. But the one that, that really nails it home for us regarding how we fulfill the righteous demands of the, the Lord, in Romans 8, 4, it says this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who produces that righteousness within us. He also produces peace and joy, and he also produces the love that was lacking in verse 15, and he also produces the faith that he talks about in verses 22 and 23, right? See how he says in the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God, verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatsoever does not proceed from faith. The sin that you realize that faith is a fruit of the Spirit. Pistos is the word in Galatians chapter 5. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit will never, never, cause me or lead me to intentionally offend my brother. The Spirit will never lead me to intentionally offend my brother. It doesn't mean that we'll never offend our brother. But the Spirit will never lead me to intentionally do it. I know there's a problem here, but I'm going to do it anyway because I have freedom. So thus far, we've noted these principles. Do not judge one another. Do not cause stumbling. Do not grieve one another. Do not allow your liberty to become a reproach. The final concept for this morning is this. Pursue peace in building one another's faith. Pursue peace 
and building one another's faith. faith. Verse 18, I skipped, I shouldn't have. Let's just pause at verse 18 for just one second. Whoever thus serves Christ. What does he mean by thus? In this way, right? In what way? That we're not causing our our brother to stumble, that we're not judging one another, that we're um, not grieving one another, but instead walking in love. Instead of uh, causing one another to stumble and destroying them, we are uh, living a life orchestrated by the Spirit of God that demonstrates itself in the right way to live righteousness and peace and joy. So this person is pleasing to God, acceptable to God, and he is approved by men. And so our relationship with others will be right when we have these things as our uh, life-guiding principles. So now we get to verses 19 and following, and we're just going to focus on, on verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Upbuilding. So pursuing what makes for peace. Do you remember that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, peacemakers. Looking for ways to bring people together. Looking for ways to to edify one another, to care for one another. In James chapter 3, which we don't have time to turn to, he talks about the wise and understanding person. He says, let him show that wisdom by the way he acts. He says, if you have bitter envy and selfish conceit in your heart, you're You're living in accordance with demonic, worldly, sensual wisdom. On the other hand, the wisdom that's from above, grace wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, easy to be entreated, full of good fruits and uh, not hypocrisy or sincerity. So he lets us know that there's a wisdom that comes from above. And then he says there's a harvest of righteousness that is sown in Peace by those who make peace. God has called us to be peacemakers. And here in this text, he's saying, let us pursue the word there, dioko. It's the same word used for persecution. When a person's persecuting someone else, they're not like callously and um, like leisurely doing it. There's, a, there's a, an intent. There's, there's a ferocity with it. And he's telling us to have that kind of a ferocious spirit toward pursuing peace with one another. I want you to notice the positive virtues mentioned in Romans 14, the second half. Verse 14, love. Verse 16, good. Verse 17, righteousness, peace, and joy. Verse 19, he says, peace and mutual upbuilding. Then in verses 22 and 23, he talks about faith. The result of the Spirit's work in our lives is reflective of God's kingdom. And we, as God's people, have been called to be reflective of God's kingdom. If we take little thought, if we take little thought about the spiritual well-being of those with whom we disagree, we are not walking in love. We are not demonstrating the fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit. We are unconcerned about the spiritual progress of others. We are caring little about our own acceptable, uh, our own acceptability is really what I should have typed before God. And fifthly, and I'd say probably the most important, we are placing a low value on what Jesus placed the ultimate value. One last time, look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. When we think more of ourselves and so little of a brother or sister in Christ, we are placing a low value on that for which Jesus placed the ultimate value. He laid down his life as a once-for-all sacrifice to bear their guilt 
and sin and condemnation to provide for them eternal salvation. See, when we get out of the weeds, get really right up in it, think, well, this is right and this is wrong. This is right and this is wrong. Sometimes we lose perspective of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture comes down to what God's purposes are. Who are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be reflecting the character of his kingdom, which is his character. And we're supposed to care for one another. And if we are not reflecting the kind of spirit of our Savior that laid down his life for our brother or sister in Christ, what, what really are we trying to accomplish? It's a really good chapter. Now, I don't know how many particular applications are coming to your mind. I find this to be one of the more challenging uh, passages to apply, to find actual definitive points of application with, with the specific minutia of it. Very difficult. Because we can talk about uh, music or media or or kinds of dress, and I don't know, I don't know exactly how they all apply, other than this. If my action is hurtful to a believer in Jesus Christ, number one, I need to have some clarification with them in case they're just misinformed. And secondly, I need to care enough about them to not flaunt that area in front of them if it's offensive to them. What are those ways that that applies? I think you have to figure that out between you and the Lord. The Spirit has to point out to you as you're willing, Lord, is there some area that I might be offensive to one of my brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there something that I'm thinking, the way that I'm doing, the way that I'm carrying myself, the things that I invite people into that, that might cause struggles? If there's something, the Lord will certainly reveal it to you if you want him to. If you don't care, well, that's another matter, right? It's another matter. But when we boil it right down, Lord, help me to love others the way that you have loved them, and help me to be reflective of your glorious kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Help us. Help us that we would be sensitive to your leading and the truth of your word. May our lives reflect your love, that which is good, a lifestyle of righteousness, a pursuit of peace, an overwhelming joy, and a desire to build others up with the way that I conduct myself. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.